Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, friends and neighbors, and welcome. Welcome to this week's roundtable, where we gather three or four of Washington's hardworking journalists to look back on the news of the week. Well, with Congress and the president out of town, you'd expect things to slow down, but haha, not this week. Suddenly, it looks like we could be on the brink of a new war in the Middle East. With eerie reminders of the Iran hostage crisis, Iran-backed protesters stormed the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad. And then, in retaliation, on January 2nd, the United States drone-fired missile killed the leader of Iran's Revolutionary Guard who had just arrived in Baghdad. Iran is expected to strike back. The question is how and how soon. Meanwhile, on another foreign policy front, North Korea's Kim Jong-un announced that he was tired of playing Mr. Nice Guy with Donald Trump and threatened a major new long-range missile launch. Back home on the 2020 front, another Democrat dropped out, and only five Democrats have qualified so far for next Tuesday's debate. Wow. Here to try to make some sense of it all, Lauren Burke rejoining us, writer for Black Press USA. Hi, Lauren. How are you? Nice to see you. Nice seeing you. Uh, Sudeep Reddy here joining us for the first time, managing editor of Politico. Hi, Sudeep. Hi, Bill. Good to see you. And Addie Baird back again, congressional correspondent for BuzzFeed. Hello, Addie. Hi, Bill. Welcome to all of you and a happy new year to all of you and to all of our uh, listeners as well. So let's just dive right in. Um, I think we have to Except up front that none of us, by the way, this is Friday morning, January 3rd, just a little after 8.30 a.m., so that's where we're addressing what's happened so far this week, and things could change by the minute. But I started to say, none of us um, are really experts on the foreign east, but what do we make of what's happening in Iran? Uh, could, this, could this really trigger um, a, a war? new war in the Middle East. Sudeep, what do you think? This seems like it is a new war in the Middle East. This is the United States taking action against Iran in probably the most profound way that we will see in our lifetime. And this is uh, the, the the start of a, of a movement by the United States that will be seen as an act of war by Iran and will probably get a response that is equivalent to an act of war uh, against Iran. And the, the scariest part is nobody knows what that response look like, looks like. We are uh, seeing in this case a country that has not necessarily operated uh, under the norms of engagement, partly because of the circumstances in, in which it's been uh, fighting over the last uh, few years with the Trump administration. And um, it is probably going to, to use its resources, not just uh, around Iran, but across the Middle East and across the world to uh, fire back at U.S. Uh, military installations, U.S. troops, and perhaps even uh, commercial assets by the United States and others. And it has considerable resources. 
Right. It has uh, considerable Iran. resources. It is, uh, it is a country that uh, has been squeezed over the last few years from U.S. sanctions on its oil uh, exports, but it still does have resources that it's willing to use. Its military budget is a, a fraction. I think it's one fortieth, one fiftieth of what the U.S. military budget is. But you can still still do a lot of damage with what they've got. The president actually just tweeted about this. <laughs> this is the benefit of keeping our phones on. Um, you know, in in you can read it, Bill, or I can read it, but basically Please. it's about exactly as what you would expect. Um, he says General Soleimani was killed or badly has killed or badly wounded thousands of Americans over an extended period of time and was plotting to kill many more, dot dot dot, but got caught. He was directly and indirectly responsible for the death of millions of people, including the recent large number of protesters, in all caps, killed in Iran itself. While Iran will never be able to properly admit it, Soleimani was both hated and feared within the country. They are not nearly as saddened as the leaders will let the outside world believe he should have been taken out many years ago. So okay. there's your presidential statement. All right. There's Donald Trump's <laughs> take on it. What is your take on it? Oh, I agree with everything um, that has been said so far. I, I'm not an expert in this realm, but it certainly seems like we are hurling toward a new war in, in the Middle East in an election year during an impeachment. Uh, so, um, Lauren, before you jump in, let's just go to back up, right? I mean, this mm -hmm. started with some Iranian-backed militia right. firing on a military base and in which one U.S. contractor was killed. Right. Uh, the response was... U.S. sent rockets into a military uh, to a militia training camp where 24 Iran, Iran, Iranian militia were killed. Right then, the protesters showed up at the U.S. embassy in Baghdad with surprising strength and surprising success. I thought that what we all believed was the most fortified embassy in the world. Right. <laughs> they were able to penetrate it mm -hmm. and set parts of it on fire. Uh, and then, when it looked like that might really escalate, suddenly they picked up their tents and whatever, banners, and went home and said, okay, we've made our point, boom. And it looked like it was over. And then right. comes this drone strike with the uh, head of the Revolutionary Guard, CUD uh, force, I guess it's called, mm -hmm. uh, who arrives in Baghdad and as he's being driven out of the airport, the U.S. drone uh, rocket fires and kills him. So is this sort of a measured response or overkill? <laughs> I would, I would vote for overkill. I mean, uh, obviously, everyone knows that General Soleimani has uh, been responsible for the and deaths a bad of guy. people. Yeah, I mean, and obviously, that's going to be the administration's argument that, you know, uh, we took out somebody bad. The problem is it, it, it signals a major escalation in that region at a time when everyone had been talking about withdrawal. And obviously, President Trump has talked about getting out of the Middle East and not being as involved, et cetera, and so on. There's been a major criticism he's hurled at, you know, uh, Barack Obama and others. So why then are you now escalating this to the point where you've taken out uh, the second, arguably the second most important person in that country? So obviously it's a major escalation. The question is, does Donald Trump understand what that means when they respond? And when you do things like this, there's bound to be some sort of response. And does he have any plan for what happens after that response? And you can guess that the answer is no on all of those counts. He tweeted a piece of clip art earlier uh, before this tweet that he just did. I mean, there's not a president, who, we all know, who's is not a deep thinker. And I, there's a lot of banter on Twitter with regard to this being a wag the dog moment because, of course, uh, Donald Trump had tweeted about this happening during uh, Bill Clinton's term, you know, during, in 1998. 
And it does seem a little bit odd, given that uh, we're on the very day that the Senate is going to come in, and Mitch McConnell is obviously going to make a statement mm -hmm. about how we may or may not go forward on impeachment in the Senate. So this is, uh, you know, a president who has had a revolving door in his, uh, his advisors on foreign policy, uh, not a president that... Uh, is a big time planner. So I think this is a extremely scary moment to say the least. This is also a president who, uh, as you've noted, does tweet a lot and tweeted a lot back in 2011, 2012 and 2013 about this very issue, saying that our president will start a war with Iran in order to get reelected. Right. That is Trump talking <laughs> about uh, uh, Barack Obama, that obviously there there's a tweet for that. There's always a tweet for that with Donald Trump. <laughs> and in this case, uh, there are quite a few uh, of him making exactly this case uh, about a different president. What we have here, though, is is an unusual circumstance. I think in which uh, the, this president, President Trump, does not uh, is not usually seen as a student of history uh, <laughs> on on so many matters. But on on this one, I think he actually does recognize the risk of being in the Middle East. This is the one issue that he has wanted, to and be. he has he has pulled back from a couple right. of times Absolutely when people has. thought he might. And, take some and military exactly. action. Exactly, and this is we are now entering our sixth decade of devastating engagement in the Middle East, the United States engagement in the Middle East in, in, in uh, some form or another, uh, from the Arab oil embargo period through the Iran-Iraq War, obviously the Gulf War, uh, another mm. Gulf War, uh, the rise of ISIS and the fall, depending on what you think ISIS's state is, and mm -hmm. now uh, whatever this engagement with Iran takes. The president is in many ways fixed his his notions of the damage of being in the Middle East. It started in the 70s. That is where so much of his insight comes from. And right. he knows how devastating the Arab oil embargo and high oil prices was and how devastating uh, the, the takeover of Iran was in, in 1979 and Americans being pushed out. So That's he, exactly he recognized right. He this. recognized it and it's against brand. He campaigned on America first. He campaigned on, you know, obviously focusing our issues here. He's basically an isolationist in a lot of ways. At least he talks that way. Uh, everybody generally understands that we've spent, what, $2.4 trillion dealing with the Middle East. I think most Americans, when they hear this issue, think to themselves, why are we over there? And why are we killing people uh, you know, why are we escalating and, and, and driving tension in that region? And what is it doing for and us? And that is exactly I, the argument Donald Trump would have made. Right. Trillions of dollars right. spent, oh, yeah. uh, thousands oh, of American lives, millions of, of Iraqi lives. Why are we engaging in all well, this? Well, on so, some level. Uh, yeah, I just want to ask. Uh, no, go uh, ahead. Sorry. With covering Congress. Now, I know this okay. happened last night. You haven't had a chance to get down there and prowl the halls yet. And, <laughs> and the House is still out. But... Um, we did hear that the leaders of Congress were not informed of this ahead of time. Right. Uh, which certainly is going to cause some concern, even among some Republicans on, on, in, in the Congress, would you think? I would think so. And, and I was just going to, to sort of say, in, in some way, I think this is actually very on brand for the president. The one thing he has been very consistent about is um, inconsistency. <laughs> um, and, and that is why the thing of, oh, there's always a tweet for everything. There's, you know, that's why that's become such a Twitter meme. Um, but I do think that you're right. I think that this is the sort of thing Republicans have historically, re congressional Republicans, have historically been most comfortable breaking with the president on foreign policy issues. Um, I, I don't know exactly why they feel most comfortable about that, um, but that has been the case. And I would suspect, you know, there has been a, signif a significant amount of praise from congressional Republicans um, for this decision. So far, Marco Rubio, yeah. I saw, and, um, and Jim Rich, the head of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Right. Almost predictably, 
Right. right. But I would say, you know, there, I would say it certainly seems like the sort of thing that you could get some, some Senate Republicans saying, well, you know, we would have authorized it, but we didn't have a chance to authorize it or, you know, things like that. I, right. I think that it could be an, an issue. for. So deep, for there's no doubt, is there, that Iran will respond? Iran will respond. What we don't know is whether whether Iran will respond as a uh, nation normally responds with a, a traditional uh, act of war in response, or whether it will use the the tentacles that it has spread across the Middle East to respond in that way, respond against U.S. forces in Iraq or in Syria or somewhere else. This is an action that, of course, took place outside of Iran, so it seems uh, likely that uh, U.S. forces will be uh, hit. But of course, the the that's the scariest. That's the scariest of all, right? That this could happen <laughs> right. almost anywhere on the planet, given mm-hmm. the tentacles of. Of revolutionary, whatever forces that Iran supports, it is. It is. Uh, though the administration would argue this has been happening in uh, in Iraq and in Syria for for years by uh, by Iranian backed militias, and so all of that is is their way of saying this was going to continue in some form if. The United States didn't take decisive action, and this is this is a moment that uh, other Republican presidents have gone through. George W. Bush campaigned as uh, a bit of an isolationist as well, and and uh, criticized nation building overseas, and that was uh, within yeah, his, his first year in office. That there was there was obviously an act that they that that he felt like uh, called him to action, and this is one that Trump will be arguing uh, for the next year called him to action in a much bigger way against his his normal uh, approach and his normal commentary. So we've talked about several uh, responses that we've seen on Twitter so far. Uh, one that struck me, uh, Lauren, last night, George Conway, um, probably one of the most outspoken critics of the president, tweeted, quote, It would be nice right around now to have a president of the United States whom you could assume makes important foreign policy decisions on the basis of thoughtful consideration of America's national interest and not impulses based on perceptions of his personal self-interest. Yeah, George Conway is one of my favorite Twitter accounts. <laughs> uh, easily. Uh, so yeah, I mean, but, it's what. But it is. It is on point, right? <laughs> uh-huh. When something like this happens, mm-hmm. like, uh, I'm sorry, but no, it's fine. But you mentioned George W. Bush. I mean, right. he, George W. Bush, not my favorite president, but right. he would have had very serious, thoughtful discussions right. in the Oval Office with some very serious, thoughtful people before they would take any action. Yeah, and obviously, you know, it's one thing to be making up silly, childish names about Na- for Nancy Pelosi and Maxine Waters. It's another thing to be doing life-and-death decisions overseas and, and killing people. And uh, it's already been established, well-established, that this president is not somebody who thinks is a responsible grown adult. So now you're, you know, playing with our military personnel. This is always the fear when we, when we think about Donald Trump. And the timing, obviously, is does not seem I'm, I've never been a believer in coincidence the fact that Congress is coming in next week and we're discussing impeachment at this very moment the fact that this is an election year I don't think any of that is coincidental are we bearing the lead here perhaps that the Iraq war is still going on yeah, it's I mean it officially <laughs> ended right. on look I checked this morning on December the 8th 19, 2011 is when we said the Iraq war is over but it's not right Oh, well, and I think that, that you're... When we know the Afghanistan war is not over. Right, but. right. And, and that's part of what I was going to say. I think that you're, um, you're thinking about how President Bush would handle this is interesting because I'm not 
convinced that, uh, you know, the way that the Iraq war unfolded proves that there was a lot of uh, thoughtful consideration <laughs> during the Bush years. Um, but it is certainly, I think, you know, the Iraq war and the Afghanistan war are continuing on. And on some level, you know, it's sort of, we've we've been in the middle east for so long it feels this is this is sort of connected to these never ending wars that don't seem to be uh going well as as a lot of recent reporting has proved about afghanistan um but yeah i mean it is it doesn't seem to be any coincidence that this is happening when it's happening um it's like political science 101 is is the sort of idea that a president will get into a war during an election year um and you know the benefits to a president uh that that come with that are certainly something that that you know that's probably what's on trump's mind right there but are risks there are substantial risks to a president being at war in an election sure, year as sure. well and that's, that's also true. on his mind right uh, you're you're seeing seeing just a bit of it in in the the first uh, day after right now with oil prices rising, the stock market dropping. Both of those effects have been uh, fairly mild so far. But if you actually have a greater conflict in the Middle East and and uh, have some of the nightmare scenarios take place that have been warned about for decades, for instance, shutting down the Strait of Hormuz, that has been a threat from Iran uh, for, for much of the past decade. And we are closer than ever uh, before to that. There are uh, uh, aircraft carriers that have moved in from all over the world into this tiny uh, stretch of, of sea coming out of the Persian Gulf. Uh, and if uh, Iranians or anyone else or the Houthi rebels uh, or any of the, the militias in the region were to shut down the Strait of Hormuz, you would see oil prices... Uh, uh, spike within days, you would actually see uh, every call for a recession uh, ignite uh, within uh, within days as well, and that would be essentially uh, the end of the Trump presidency. You have gas prices spike, but there there are of course, uh, as Addy says, there are benefits of of looking strong, of actually appearing that you're taking on a, a problem that has not been addressed before, and that is a Republican argument here is that this is a, a situation that has festered for too long and has not been addressed. Well, but and I think that that sort of is the, the idea with that Conway tweet is that everything you have just said is so true and very hard to imagine that that's the conversation being had in the Oval Office. Um, you know, Trump is, I, I, it's so much easier, I think, to think about him thinking about looking strong and not the actual global implications of this decision. This is, this is one, though, where the president in, in the most unusual way has uh, walked up to the line before over and over. He uh, considers yeah. stronger action in Syria, pulled back. He was actually uh, considering retaliation against Iran for for shooting down an American drone and pulled back at the last minute in a way in a way that was contrary to his military advisors, people who were pushing him and egging him on to actually have a decisive action. Uh, and w why this was the moment is what we're going to learn about in the coming days and weeks. What really drove him to the point. Uh, this time to repeat the cycle of the the wag the dog cycle of having uh, a war right in right in the middle of an impeachment uh, proceeding. So, um, so long we move into this with, despite what the president promised, and I think what he really wanted to do in terms of disengaging the Middle East. It looks like we're moving into twenty twenty. We are in this in this election year with a continuing war, the longest ever in Afghanistan, a continuing war in Iraq, war in Syria. And now, 
Who yeah. knows with Iran? Yeah, we're moving into not 2020. to mention Yemen and other places. Right, right? Exactly. I mean, we're moving into 2020 with World War Three trending third on Twitter, which is not a good look. I mean, you can keep these balls in the air for a while, but can you keep them in the air forever? You know, at some point, somebody's going to react. I mean, it's not a, it's not hard to figure out. And I think that, you know, it's scary when we talk about George Bush and Barack Obama. They had foreign, they had foreign policy advisors who were responsible adults who were there in office for more than two and three months before disappearing. I mean, this is not a normal administration. It's not a normal situation. And we always have to, uh, we always have to base what we're talking about on the fact that this president is an unprecedented president who does things in unprecedented and and completely. Uh, he does things in ways that are totally bereft of deep thinking. And we know that. That's a fact. That's not anybody's opinion at this point. So I think it's extremely scary. Right. Uh, and on that scary note, uh, <laughs> let's walk away from the Middle East uh, and get back to some of the questions that are happening here at home uh, with our panel, Lauren Burke and Eddie Baird and Sudeep Reddy, uh, here on the roundtable for the Bill Press Pod on this Friday, January 3rd. And a roundtable today brought to you by the Laborers International Union of North America, Layuna, layuna.org. Layunabuildsamerica.org is their website. Uh, and they are indeed members of the Laborers Union under the leadership of President Terry O'Sullivan, the builders of America in the construction field, building infrastructure, roads, bridges, schools, skyscrapers in the energy field, building pipelines, solar uh, farms, and wind farms. And uh, in the public sector as well, workers in healthcare, sanitation, and road maintenance, among many others. A powerhouse of over half a million workers, the Laborers Union of North America. We thank them for their good work building America and thank them for the support of the Bill Press Pod. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. 
Ready to elevate your home? Picture this. Central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis, go green with solar panels, or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's Home Equity line of credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to figure.com and transform your home. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. And we continue with uh, today's roundtable. Sadiq Reddy joins us from Politico, um, Lauren Burke from Black Press USA, and Addie Baird from BuzzFeed. Uh, it On this Friday, the Senate comes back in town. Mitch McConnell scheduled to address the Senate on the issue of a Senate trial on President Trump uh, following the impeachment of President Trump by the House of Representatives in December. Uh, and the question is, will there be a fair trial? Will there be witnesses or will there be any trial at <laughs> all? All right, Addie, what's Nancy Pelosi up to? Well, Nancy Before Pelosi, we get to Ms. Ricardo. Yes. Yes, I, I, you know, Nancy Pelosi, I guess, well, briefly, the plan for today is the Senate will be coming back and Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer will speak on the floor. Both, okay. Um, I think it is very likely, if I were a betting woman, um, that Mitch McConnell says we cannot have a trial right now. We're at war, basically. Um, but... Uh, that is just a guess. Mm -hmm. They cannot have a trial right now because Nancy Pelosi has not transmitted articles of impeachment to the Senate yet or appointed um, impeachment managers who will basically make the House's case in the Senate. Um, she has sort of gone, um, you know, right after the vote, she said that they wanted to see... Um, Basically, they wanted to see how the Senate trial would be handled before appointing impeachment managers so that she would have a better understanding of who might be good to appoint. Um, and, you know, has at times said that she wouldn't appoint them until she believed that the trial was going to be fair. Um, when we pushed her on that, she sort of said that that was not what she said, even though it kind of was what she said. Um, I think the thing that was sort of underplayed was just that the House did not want to work over the holidays and they did not want to, the Senate wanted to be gone and no one wanted to do anything for a little while. Um, but now I'm, I'm kind of unsure what exactly will, will happen moving forward. I felt like before, you know, this, uh, this happened, that it was pretty likely that probably next week middle of next week we would get the articles transmitted and impeachment managers appointed but um you know now it sort of feels like all bets are off yeah but sudeep this and learn there's a new element here which is over the break some new emails were released from the white house which show that the president directly ordered that the 400 million dollars for ukraine be upheld it was a direct <laughs> order of the president the the official from the Office of Management and Budget says that uh, in an email. So this may ch change the picture a little bit. These are all interesting details and layers of the story to us because they uh, solidify the, the, the facts of the matter that the president was uh, very deeply enmeshed in, in, uh, in using the U Ukraine issue for his political benefit. It does not really change a whole lot for the Republican senators uh, who are going to have to, to serve as jurors in this case. But does, they, it, they don't. does it quicken the case for witnesses to get that, to, to get, you know, 
maybe some of these administration officials in front of the Senate to say, yes, the orders came from Donald Trump. Throughout the last few months, all of these things that you would think would make the case for a, a process of that kind with witnesses, with more fact-finding, uh, have all been brushed off by the president and by uh, many people in his party. And so I, I would not actually see a whole lot of change on this front as we get new facts of the matter, because this is this is something that even Mitch McConnell has very openly uh, and brazenly stated is going to come up, is going to be cleared uh, pretty uh, swiftly, and none of that will change. The, the only thing that could happen now is, is, is maybe there's a, a greater desire desire uh, to, to move on faster than there was before well, was as gonna, more facts come out. Yeah, I was going to ask Lauren about that. So, mm -hmm. you know, because there, there was this, even among Republicans, this this uh, little debate about having a full-fledged, serious trial with witnesses and everything, or right. just having quick and dirty and getting it over with. I think they're going to go for the quick and dirty and getting it over with. And there's really nothing that has changed the calculus with regard to the moderates in the Senate and Susan Collins is and the Cory Gardner's. I mean, they're the same. They're going to be in the same place that they were likely. Now you have this distraction of a major foreign policy event, and also given the apparatus of the way the news business works in terms of changing cycles, which happens very quickly. I actually remember the Clinton impeachment. I covered the Clinton impeachment, and everybody was riveted to that. And uh, obviously, Lloyd Benson and the whole thing was. Uh, basically stopping the nation. I can't imagine that happening in the same uh, news business that we have now. People are not as deeply invested, and the story is not as easy to understand. Right. <laughs> so there's all that. And I just think that the longer Pelosi takes to decide whether or not she wants to move forward, the longer she has to message whatever she's messaging, which the Democrats are not good at, I, I think that's problematic for them, just as a general observation. Right. Uh, I, I want to raise <laughs> just one issue, related issue, which is uh, her name has already been mentioned, Susan Collins. So Susan Collins says, um, I'm paraphrasing basically, it's a little troubling to her that Mitch McConnell says he's just going to follow whatever the White House wants. And suddenly we're playing the Susan Collins game again. <laughs> oh, no, oh it looks so like Susan Collins. <laughs> always playing the Susan Collins game. How many times are people going to fall for this? I know. As I know. many times as she does it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, is there any doubt the way she's going to vote? No. No, right. Right? No, that's right. She. Well, I mean, obviously, when you're that type of quote moderate in the Senate, you, can, you know you can always get attention when you play this game, and that's just what she's doing. There's you know? a, there's a theater involved in all of this. So yeah. She has understood her her place in her home state, yeah. and the way to get reelected right. is right. to appear to right. be grappling with uh, <laughs> with this issue. And the yeah. the appearance is what matters for so many senators. And in this case, she is pulling off the appearance in her home state uh, for moderates and independents, people who she thinks she will need to win reelection. All right. So let's take a look at 2020. The numbers are out for money raised in the fourth quarter. Not that money is the most important thing in politics, but you can't get to, to be a nominee of the Democratic Party without it. Um, Bernie Sanders, a stunning $34.5 million. Uh, Pete Buttigieg coming in second place with 24.7, which is also incredible. Joe Biden at 22.7 million. Elizabeth Warren at 17 million. Andrew Yang at 16.5 million and Amy Klobuchar at 11.4. Um, does this mean we're down to the final five or six? 
Yeah, Democrats, I think, are in big trouble because not only the Bernie Sanders number, but the average of $18 would tell you that there's a lot of people out there. And of course, he put out the number of donors, which is, was it, 1 million five or something like that. Yeah. It was some unbelievable amount. And so it's going to come down to whether or not the party is going to go left and try to present somebody to the country that would be difficult to elect because he is so left, or are they going to go with the more conventional corporate Democrat structure or Joe Biden, et cetera? That is going to be extremely difficult to for the for the Democratic Party. I would I say, you know, I would make the, the counter argument. I think that Sanders' numbers prove that that's where the energy in the party is. And, you know, uh, some of his supporters were, were making the point yesterday, and I thought it was compelling that, um, you know, it is so much more powerful to have five people donating $1 than one person donating $5. And that's basically how Sanders is trying to win this uh, win this primary election is to build a coalition of really energized voters, um, and I don't I don't necessarily think that it is a a death sentence for the party. Uh, you know, they tried to nominate a moderate last time around, and you know, look at us with President Hillary Clinton. What's striking to me here is if you add up all those numbers that Democrats got individually, they all look yeah. like they're outraised by Donald Trump. You add them up and you see right. uh, a, a Democratic base that is ready to throw Trump out of office and spend whatever they need to spend to throw exactly. him out. And so they, you add up all that money and it is an overwhelming show of force in money terms that you don't usually get from Democrats against that, Republicans. That's a very good point. I thought you were going to say, if you add them all up, it's not as much as Michael Bloomberg will spend. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is true. And Michael yeah. Bloomberg, uh, in addition right? to, to flooding the airwaves uh, to get his own uh, message out, he is actually also spending money on uh, on other fronts of, of voter mobilization. And he is also committed to making sure that Donald Trump is a one-term president. And all of the, the forces in, in traditional campaigning are moving uh, in that direction. So we started this out with the like, I always lost track, 22 or 24 um, potential candidates, uh, and the most diverse in history, right? Next Tuesday is the next Democratic debate, right. and on stage will be Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Pete Buttigieg, and Amy Klobuchar. What happened to the diversity? Oh, uh, well, what happened to the diversity of these? And Julian the Castro was dropped out. Right, exactly. So, I mean, Castro and Booker and Kamal Harris, I know Booker is still there. They do not have the numbers and they don't have the support and they don't have the fundraising. And that is just the bottom line. Uh, Kamala Harris got wrapped around the axle on an issue that I think nobody cares about, frankly, black or white, which was forced busing. <laughs> I mean, so I don't know why she pulled that one. She was totally off, off message in terms of justice reform. Uh, for mm -hmm. African-American voters as well. Uh, Booker is not getting any traction. Castro wasn't getting any traction. Um, and the question becomes, I mean, uh, it's hard. It's a hard bar to, to hit. You know, people are thinking about Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama, I think, when they look at this group, right? And then no one quite measures up to, that, to those two figures. And, you know, uh, it's, it's going to be interesting yep. to see what the party does in this situation. It's going to come down to what we know it's going to come down to, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, North Carolina, Florida. Can Sanders, can he, can he do that? Can, go ahead. Well, no, so, no uh -huh. interesting that you uh -huh. mentioned those states uh -huh. because um, I'm a believer, and I've heard other people too say that this year, Iowa, for various reasons, Iowa and New Hampshire even though they come first, are not going to be as decisive as they normally are. Do you agree? Well, these are two states that are trending toward Pete Buttigieg right now, and uh, those those 
initial uh, if he does pull off a win, um, those initial wins will then fade into South Carolina and Nevada, which are more diverse and are going to to uh, tilt differently. And then you get all the Bloomberg money having an effect in uh-huh. Super Tuesday states, and yeah. and that will split the field. So this is going to be a longer. Uh, period before we actually get if each of you had to guess right now who's going to I get asked this question all the time it's not a fair question but I'll turn it on you (laughs) just your educated guess or uneducated guess today who would you say is going to be the nominee I it's so strange I know because you can just throw out a name here well the the thing is you know everything about the last election makes you go no 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 it's going to be Andrew Yang uh, um, you know, it's sort of like you want to throw all the conventional wisdom out yeah. the window, um, which is, you know, not necessarily the way to go unless it is. So I get really I feel like I never okay. know how to answer this question. But my answer is Joe Biden. I'm going to stick with Warren, even though I, I understand what's going on right now. I'm going to stick with Warren. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm just going to leave it at that. All right. <laughs> Something I did not believe throughout 2019, <laughs> but I, I do now see Joe Biden, Joe Biden. being uh, yeah. staying in the lead okay. in that position just yeah. because it by like default. It had to collapse eventually, and it hasn't. I know. So yeah. here we are, I guess. And it will not be Andrew Yang. <laughs> no, no, it will not be Andrew Yang. Yeah. Uh, never say never. Uh, covered a lot of territory. Thank you, guys. And uh, before we let you go, uh, you must have some st- favorite story of the week or the last two weeks, maybe, or even of 2019 <laughs> that you might uh, leave us with. Uh, who wants to start? Lauren, it looks like you're loaded you know, up there, ready to really go. It's not a favorite story. It's just but a shout out, really, to Barry Weiss, the writer for the New York Times, uh, who made some excellent points this week with regard to the anti-Semitic violence we've been seeing in the country. Oh, yeah. Uh, she was just simply making the point that uh, it's a right-left problem and not specifically a right problem or a left problem. But she just, it's hard to encapsulate in a few minutes what she said on CNN, but it was an extremely excellent point that just goes to the heart of why we need to stop this violence and what we need to focus on. And we always get, you know, we always get confused by right and left politics instead of focusing on the importance of stopping this violence. So that's... That's my shout out to Barry Weiss. Good, good. Mm-hmm. a powerful message and a and a very frightening development, particularly at right. New York State. Right. You know, so many instances in yeah. such a short period of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Eddie. Um, mine is much less serious. Um, <laughs> my favorite thing that I read this week was Slate published a piece that basically said instead of making a resolution, embrace a vice, and um, I thought it was really fun. Um, you know. And, and it had a handful of their writers sort of making the argument for embracing various vices. And one of them was putting Q-tips in your ears. One of them <laughs> was um, not worrying about eating dinner with your family. Um, you know, it was it was a treat. I think that this is the time of year where we think a lot about how we're going to make our lives perfect. And, and, you know, our worst perfectionist impulses come out. And in fact, you know, what if we just stopped caring? And embrace, and embrace vice. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, it's a nice new approach to, to, to 2020. It's going to happen anyway, so you exactly. might as well, em- you might might as well, well embrace it. Exactly. <laughs> so a week ago when we didn't have a whole lot of news, I went down the rabbit hole after seeing a headline, Saucers over Washington, D.C. Oh, wow. Uh, this was, this was uh, a, uh, a, some, some uh, you know, that the, the, the 
alien sightings in yeah. the 1950s and 1960s got so much attention. Uh, there was an effort called Project Blue Book uh, that uh, that took place, uh, tracking more than 12,000 sightings of, uh, of UFOs uh, throughout that period from 1947 to 1969. Uh, and Project Blue Book uh, is on display at the National Archives uh, for its 50th uh, anniversary ending oh, wow. uh, ending in the next uh, few days. And so I went down the rabbit hole reading about uh, a, a, a different time when we thought aliens were going to take over. And maybe that is the prediction for the 2020s is that we will have aliens come and take over. Uh, after there, realizing there, what, we, what we've done to the to the planet, there are still daily sightings of <laughs> yeah. of uh, unidentified flying objects. Of course, well, my favorite story—I <laughs> always fall into this rabbit hole too—are the new laws of 2020. You know, they're also inevitably the turn of the year. All the new laws, and so some of the ones I thought that uh, caught my attention in California, and I just came back from California. Uh, you cannot, on any state beach or in any state park now, no cigarettes and no vaping, period. Not even, even your, your outdoors, totally forbidden, which I think is great. In California, you also women can breastfeed anywhere that they would normally be allowed with their baby. So it doesn't matter where. I guess that would be not in a men's locker room, right, or something. But otherwise, uh, open space. In Illinois... Sales of recreational marijuana for the first time. That started oh, in big Illinois. Smile from yeah, that. that's right. Uh, in Florida now, uh, all police officers can write citations for texting while driving. It's a thirty dollar fine, which surprises me. It's only thirty dollar fine should be more. But the one that I found most interesting came from Russia. That the Russian government has adopted a new law that just took effect that any new um, iPhones or devices. Can, cannot be sold in Russia unless they have pre-installed government-approved apps on them, Ooh, which wow. I think is going to be war between wow. Tim Cook and Apple and Vladimir Putin because they won't want to be forced to put the... Imagine if they tried that in this country, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> but And the other thing that I always... Every year makes this reflection. Where's the list of laws that were canceled right in the last year or in the new year they never cancel any they just keep adding new ones which i think says something about it so that's it thanks so much uh to our panelists thank to you all for listening uh, thanks lauren burke from black press usa and to addy baird from buzzfeed sudeep reddy joining us from politico and thank you all for being with us here as we start this uh, new year 2020 on the bill press pod and we haven't already done so. We ask you now's a good time. New Year's resolution: subscribe to the Bill Press Pod. Just go anywhere where you find your podcast at the Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, uh, or um, any other site. Uh, just check out the Bill Press Pod. It comes up. Subscribe. Click on that, and you are in. And if you really want to be on top of things. Uh, follow me on Twitter at Bill Press Pod, at Bill Press Pod, uh, and that way you'll be informed of any new podcasts coming up. And with that, we thank you again for listening. Have a great, great week. We'll see you next week with another roundtable, uh, and we'll welcome you back to the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.